Say good morning, greetings in Christ's name. It's good to be here today to worship together. I appreciated that last, that last song, um, Worshiping God in the Beauty of Holiness, actually is going to dovetail very well with the message that I had thought to share this morning. The message is called A Path to God's Presence, and uh, it is one of a series of messages I had shared at the Paris Chapel a while back about the tabernacle. We were doing, we are doing a study through the book of Hebrews, and we came into the uh, discussion on the tabernacle and decided to kind of take a side path into a discussion about the tabernacle. And I've really been blessed with a look at the tabernacle and the significance of what that is to us in our worship experience. If you have your Bibles available, you may turn to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to be looking at that in a few minutes for a text. Exodus chapter 30. The study... Um, of the tabernacle, we'll be looking at the, at the uh, furniture in the tabernacle and, and some of the uh, tremendous symbolism that that has for our, our uh, worship experience. The tabernacle was a way to, a reminder to God about his presence being with his people. God desires to dwell with man. I, I'm amazed that he does, but he does. And he has set up a, reminders for us. Initially, God spent time with his people in the Garden of Eden. It was a good fellowship there. And God's presence was with his, uh, that first family. They had a, an open relationship a good relationship. But man was cast out from God's presence out of the Garden of Eden and was caused to uh, kept at somewhat of a distance. There were individuals through the years that experienced God's presence with them. But when God called his people out of Egypt, he elected to make his presence more visible. And he instituted that through a, a tent that they put up in the wilderness. We call it the tabernacle. It's just a, an old English word of saying the tent. It's a place of dwelling. And it was often called the tent of the presence or the tabernacle of the presence of God. It consisted of a large courtyard, somewhat large, some, a, uh, an altar, and next between the altar and the worship area, there was a laver or a large bowl up on a stand where the priests could wash before they went on in their service into the holy place. I put a, made up a little drawing for the tabernacle of what it was looking like, I think, the holy place or the holy of holies is where God's presence was. It was behind the second curtain. 
And that is where God's presence was in a tangible way. He would come and uh, the people would know that his presence was there by a cloud, pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. And the Bible says that he dwelt between the cherubim on the mercy seat. Now we know that God himself cannot be limited by a place such as this. But it was a beautiful symbol of the presence of God and where he is. And allowed the children of Israel to focus on his presence. And they would, once a year, a high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a sacrifice. But the thoughts and the attention of the Israelite people could constantly be directed toward that place. Before anyone could approach the holy place, there need to be a sacrifice made. And this happened at the entrance to the tabernacle. And we spent a session just talking about this altar called the, the brazen altar. It was a large place where a sacrifice was, was made. The Israelite man would bring his animal to the door of the to the entryway of the courtyard and up to the altar. There he would lay a hand on the head of this animal and the priest would kill it. And it was sacrifice would be made. For us, this is a beautiful symbol of the cross where a sacrifice was accomplished for our salvation. We come to the cross. If we don't come to the cross, we can't go any further in God's plan. We come to the cross where a sacrifice has been accomplished. The common people could not go any further than that altar. That's where they, that's where they were limited as far as where they could go. Beyond that, they, there were priests. And the priests were, of course, symbolic of, of us as Christians. We are part of a priesthood of believers. First Peter 2 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We, uh, as far as the symbolism goes in the tabernacle, are now part of that uh, body of priests. And today I want to spend our time talking about the one article of furniture that came immediately after that brazen altar, and that was a brazen laver. And its position was 
very strategic. Its symbolism is very intense in that it is located between the altar and the holy place or the place where worship was accomplished. Let's read the few verses here out of Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. A prescription that was given to Moses on how to make the brazen laver. We don't know exactly what it looked like. I've seen a lot of artists' conception of what the brazen laver looked like, but it was a, a bowl, a large bowl, that had water in it, and uh, they, it was on a, a stand. It was made of, made of brass. Brass in the scripture is, a, is symbolic of judgment. If you read about brass throughout scripture, it is, it is a, a symbol of God's judgment. This was not just your ordinary brass, however. It was made, uh, Exodus tells us, from the, uh, from the mirrors of the women who gathered at the tabernacle. It was made from the mirrors that they used. Then back then they didn't use glass mirrors. They used a shiny brass. They had the little mirrors that they made out of brass. It was a very smooth, very bright kind of brass. And uh, ladies would comb their hair with, with this brass mirrors that they had. And they, uh, they donated, a bunch of these ladies, I don't know if they donated all of their looking glasses or the mirrors, but they donated this to the artisan, and he made from this kind of brass the labor or the large, uh, large bowl that was there for the priests to wash themselves with. And the scripture that we just read said that they needed to wash all the time. They were constantly washing. They would go, if they were going on into the tabernacle proper or into the holy place to, for, the, for the service of the, of the bread, showbread, or the candle lighting, or to offer incense, they would wash before they go in. And the prescription was very clear. You will wash so that you don't die. You skip the washing and, and you go in there, you're going to die. Also, before they did the sacrifice, they were constantly sacrificing all these animals. They would, they would before they would offer sacrifices, they would take and wash their hands and their feet in a symbolic way of, of showing cleansing that is to happen. No dimensions given for the size of this article of furniture in contrast to some of the other articles of furniture. 
And this may, this may be significant in that there is unlimited cleansing available. We, I, I can't say that for sure, but it would be possible that it would be significant that way. The labor is somewhat uh, symbolic of Christ's resurrection ministry. The cross and the altar was death, death to the animal. Death accomplished the atonement for, for sin. And as we rise with Christ to walk in newness of life, this would be symbolized by this, this labor, the, the cleansing that happens. And this, this labor had Christ's resurrection power associated with it for holy living. We talked about, we sang about holiness. I want to read a scripture from Ephesians 1, verses 17 and following. Ephesians 1, 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I want to focus today on a very practical message. It is not theoretical. It is very, very practical in scope as far as for us as believers. It's something that we practice every day, and you may never have associated it with the brazen labor that was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament uh, some, some 1,500 years before Christ. But I have four points to the message this morning associated with, with the uh, symbolism of the labor. The first point I'd like to make is that daily cleansing is for believers. How many of you wash your hands a lot? One of the hand, hand, hand washers out there. Uh, my daughter has worked with children a lot, and, and uh, she was in Haiti recently and came back, and she, she, uh, she realized what bugs are out there and what things can be caught, and, and she just washes her hands a lot. And I do too. I, I have learned to wash my hands an awful lot. Maybe it's almost compulsive, I don't know. But washing your hands is a way of getting rid of, of, uh, of the dirt that's on there and, the, and the, all the nasty little things that you may have accumulated. I read the story that really illustrates that about a surgeon or a doctor back in the 19th century. And to me, it was very hard to believe that the medical profession back then didn't, didn't have an inkling in 1818, one out of six women in hospitals who had children died of something called childbirth fever. Out of six women that went to the hospital, one would die out of this childbirth fever, they called it. And it, 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 it was a result of a doctor's daily routine. He would begin his morning 
routine by doing postmortems. He would go out to the to the uh, dissecting room where he did autopsies. And then he made his rounds throughout the hospital checking on the ladies. And uh, no one even thought to wash his hands, at least not until a doctor named Ignaz Simmelweis began to practice strict hand washing. He was the very first doctor to associate a lack of hand washing with a huge fatality rate. Dr. Simmelweis only lost one in 50 of his lady patients. One in 50. Yet his colleagues laughed at him. Once he said, childbirth fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proven all that I've said. But, a while, but while we talk, 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 women are dying. I'm not asking for anything world-shaking, only that you wash your hands. Yet virtually no one believed him. No one would wash, none of the doctors would want to wash their hands. And the ladies kept dying. As Christians, we've all been to the altar. We have had a conversion experience because of Christ's atonement at Calvary. We're justified by faith in the sacrifice of Christ. We accept that as having been for us. We're Christians. Our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. Yet our hands become contaminated due, due to daily living. Contact with dirt, contact with dirty people, contact with dirty influences, and our own sinful inclination. And what I'm going to leave with you this morning is that we need to daily wash. We need to wash all the time. It's much more important even than physical washing of our hands is, is a, a washing, a cleansing that needs to be accomplished. I invite you to turn with me to John 13. I want to read a few verses there. It's a passage that we often use in connection with our, our feet washing practice that we have. But I'd like to shed just a little different light on that, on that passage this morning. John 13, 1 to 10. And I believe this is taken from the NIV. Trust you can follow. John 13, 1 to 10. Think of this, in, as we're reading this passage, think about the principle of daily cleansing, of washing a lot. John 13, verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin 
and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. The impact here is fairly clear in that Jesus told Peter, he said, you, you know, when Peter kind of, Peter was very, very all or nothing kind of person. He, he, when he went for something, he went all the way. He said, God, you, uh, Jesus, if you're going to wash my feet, go ahead and do the whole job, you know. Go ahead and just wash everything, if that's what you want to do. But Jesus said, he, the person who has had a bath and has been out walking along the road, uh, has gotten dust and dirt on his feet. He doesn't need to be washed altogether, but he needs to have his feet washed. And then he's, he's clean again. We need to come, to keep coming back, to experience cleansing because of the soiling that happens in daily life. Yes, we do. I do. First John 1 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, we come, figuratively speaking, to Christ. And there He is with His bowl, of water, and we place our soiled feet in his nail-pierced hands, and he washes our feet. He is girded with a towel and is ready to wash our feet. As a servant would. And you know the significance of our feet-washing service is that we as brothers and sisters also wash each other's feet. We also take responsibility as a servant to wash each other's feet by pointing to the word, by helping to clean each other, by being responsible for each other, by directing each other to, for cleansing. It's a part of a daily experience that we should have as, as Christians as we are being sanctified as we are being, being made more holy. We've experienced new life, but we still sin. There's not a one of us here that doesn't sin. We still need cleansing. We need to be corrected and chastened as children are chastened. We need to keep coming back. You know, before we go worship in the, in the holy place, one of the practices I make in my personal devotional experience when I come to Christ in, in prayer, the first thing I say is, God, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I come to you 
I need cleansing. And before I can worship, I need to be able to see. I need to be able to see that, that I, there is soiling there. I need to direct my thoughts to the fact that before I walk into worship experience, I need to acknowledge that I need cleansing. And I think as, as sanctification happens in our lives, we begin to become more and more sensitive to that need also. You know, the things that didn't bother us before now bother us. And we come to Christ and we say, God, I'm, I'm dirty. I'm sorry, God. I sinned. I need cleansing. Daily, we need to come to the labor for cleansing before we worship in the holy place so that we don't die. Daily cleansing is for believers. It's something that happens as we come to God and it's something that we can also help each other with. More than just a uh, physical symbol that we do here a couple times a year with, with a foot washing service, we need to also be able to wash each other's feet and be willing to do that. And a humble servant way of doing it. Second point I'd like to make in the, to the message this morning is that dirt buildup is deadly. Dirt buildup is deadly. It isolates and insulates us from God. It deadens our love. It clogs up our heart toward God. It creates distance and it dulls sensitivity. Dirt buildup hardens our heart. Our conscience becomes calloused. Sin becomes less terrible to us. It just doesn't seem as bad to us as terrible. As layers build, it doesn't offend us so much. And I, I, I'll pers personally testify to that. You know, if, if we allow layers to build in one area, it, it makes us less sensitive, less sensitive to other areas if we allow those dirt layers to build and we don't go for washing and we don't go for cleansing, it builds up. It promotes insensitivity to wrongdoing in other areas. You know, we marvel at the, the gross sin that some believers have gotten into. And, and I use David the king for an example, his sin with Bathsheba. You know, how could a man of God become so wicked as to, as to commit it adultery, and then also to kill, to become a murderer. A little further look at David's life, we begin to see some of the answers, I think. And one is that David had begun to be disobedient in other areas of his life before that major sin happened. He started taking multiple wives, which was against Scripture. He started multiplying horses. He started doing this. He started doing that. Things that, that kings weren't supposed to do. And it started taking away some of the sensitivity in his life. Ignoring the little sins in our life is very dangerous because it hardens us. And I, my encouragement to you and myself is that don't let it happen. Constantly come back for cleansing. Constantly come back for washing. Bear your soul daily before God and say, you know, I... Show me. Show me where, where I've done wrong. 
you know, dirt, dirt damages our witness. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Speaking of coming into his presence, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. The book of Acts tells us the story of Simon. Peter and John went to Samaria to help the believers there. They met a man called Simon. Acts chapter 8 says, And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. The Bible tells us the story of Achan, and I know all you children probably know the story of Achan. Achan was the man who sinned by taking some of the loot from Jericho. He hid a fancy robe in his silver and gold under the ground in his tent. And he probably thought it was well covered. Nobody would know. We know the story, the defeat that the Israelites experienced at the hand of a small army out of Ai the next day or soon afterward. And the people's hearts melted with fear and discouragement. And Joshua, the Bible says, fell down and tore his clothes before God. God told him that someone in Israel had sinned. After the Lord revealed who had sinned, Joshua took action. Joshua 7 says, Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the gold, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. I'd like to throw out a sobering thought that I've had occasionally as a father in our home, and that is that dirt that's in our lives affects those around us, too. It's not just a personal thing. If your life is dirty, it affects those around you as well, those you're responsible for. It may bring hardship and, and suffering to others as well. Dirt buildup will bring death if it's allowed to happen continue to happen. Third point is cleansing is by the word. Scripture says that cleansing happens by the word. The labor is a type of the word of God, then, as administered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says the following, I'm coming to you now, he's speaking to God, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of my joy, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them, speaking of his disciples. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's a picture of the word as applied to our life. Daily exposure to the water of the word. We approach the word to be cleansed. We approach for correction. We approach with an attitude of openness and a desire for the word to do what the word does. And we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate us in our study of the word. I trust this is a daily experience that each one of you have, is that you approach the word Ask the Holy Spirit's guidance in the study of the Word to make the Word do what the Word does, and that is to bring cleansing to us. To bring cleansing. And the Word is very powerful. It's living and active, Hebrews 4 says, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him on whom we must give account. You know, the, the Holy Spirit uses that word and brings it to our, our mind, to our attention, and allows it to penetrate and to cleanse, judge our thoughts. Thy word, your word, Psalm 119, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Encouragement to each one of us to allow the word to um, speak to us every day. Every day when we come apart to Worship that we allow God's word to speak to us and to bring cleansing. I think we should allow fellow believers to use the word also to apply it to us. They wash our feet. They wash our hands. They help us see our blind spots, our dirty spots. They care enough about us to splash water on us. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water the water of the word. We need to go to the word for cleansing. If we keep going to the labor of the word constantly, we won't need so much correction from others. We stay on track. Final point to this morning's message is that
we are commanded to holy living. Command to holiness. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. It is God's will that we pursue holiness in daily living. James 1 says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Clean is good. For those of you who are cleanies, clean is good. Clean living is, is good living, is godly living. God can use a clean heart that is soft and tender and receptive. God will use the believer who is set apart for him. Clean hands, a clean heart, hands that are clean for service to God, for blessing others. Hands that we have constantly taken and put in, into the labor of God's word. We constantly bring our hands and place them in, in the labor of God's word. Clean feet, clean walk of life. God has an amazing promise for those who commit to holy and clean living. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 to 7, verse 1 says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I don't think there's a question as to what God's will is in this matter in that we need to constantly come for cleansing, constantly expose ourselves to the washing of the word, to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To our brothers and sisters who may come up to us and, and also uh, splash some water on us. Clean, clean is good. Just to wrap up, uh, daily cleansing is for believers. Dirt buildup is deadly. Cleansing is by the word through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is a command to, to holiness. God bless you as you're faithful to, to him. Shall we have a song?